1969, Mario Puzo wrote in his novel, The Godfather, Behind Every Great Fortune Lies a Great Crime. And while that statement is thought-provoking, it's not a true statement. This one, by the Apostle Paul, however, is. The love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Proverbs 11:28. He who trusts in his riches will fail, but the righteous shall flourish as the green leaf. He who trusts in his riches will fail, but the righteous shall flourish as the green leaf. It doesn't say, he who has riches will fail. He who trusts in his riches will fail. Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. I love that one. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Proverbs 11.4, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. That passage from Proverbs 11 can be directly applied to our passage tonight. Money in and of itself is neutral. It's neither good nor evil. It's what people do for money and what people do with money that can make it the root of many kinds of evil. And whether or not people count on their money or are you counting on the one who gave you the money. And the climax of this principle will be found in the final three and a half years of the tribulation in the form of political and economic Babylon. If there ever was a group of people that loved money and that was counting on money and that spent all their time figuring out what they were going to do with their money and did whatever they could to cheat other people out of their money and to oppress the poor and pull all the money they could out of the poor, it's the people who were the wealthy in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. This is not the first time it's happened. If you go back into ancient Israel, in the time of Amos, the rich were oppressing the poor. There's nothing wrong with being rich. David was one of the richest people in the world at his, at his, at his day. Solomon was the richest person in the world at his day. There's nothing wrong with money. It's what you do with it and what you did to get it, and then your attitude toward it that may create a problem. Babylon, as we saw last week, as a religious system was destroyed halfway through the tribulation. Babylon, as a political and economic entity, will be destroyed at the end of the tribulation, immediately preceding the second advent of Christ. And that's where we are tonight. Revelation chapter 17 spoke of the destruction of religious Babylon. Revelation chapter 18 speaks of the destruction of political, economic Babylon. Chapter 17 spoke of the destruction of a system. Chapter 18 speaks of both the destruction of a system and a city. The system of salvation by works is the foundation of religious Babylon. The desire to glorify self rather than God is the foundation of economic Babylon. Just as the religious system had grown rich in proportion with its evil, so the nations have prospered economically in proportion with their evil. Remember last week, we talked about Babylon as a code word for a religious system. 
that will be destroyed halfway through the tribulation. Babylon as an economic idea is both localized to the city of Babylon, or if you prefer the view that Babylon is a code word for Rome, but we're going to go with the idea that Babylon is Babylon. Babylon is both that city and a worldwide economic system that's reflected by that city. For example, we talk about Wall Street. You know, on Wall Street, they do this or that or the other thing. Well, it's not necessarily all taking place on Wall Street. Some of it takes place in New Jersey. Some of it takes place in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Houston, places all over the world. But we still call it Wall Street didn't like this, or Wall Street really likes that investment, or Wall Street didn't really like that news. It's talking about the whole investment community, typically, when those terms are used. Well, here when we talk about economic Babylon, we're talking about the city itself, because we'll see at the end of this, the city itself is destroyed as the center of this economic system. But it's not just the city. The whole economic system collapses at the end of the tribulation. In chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great, and she has become a dwelling place of demons, and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. The key idea there is there's demonic activity that's associated with this city, this evil, evil city of Babylon, and the economic system, which is primarily an economic system of greed that is behind Babylon. In verse 3, for all the nations, watch, for all the nations, this is a worldwide system, have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. This is not talking about primarily sexual immorality. These are terms that can be used of sexual immorality. But this is immorality in a much broader sense. The same way with the idea of sensuality. Merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. This also this can just be understood as lust. It's greed is what it amounts to. And so the, the kings of the earth and nations have become drunk with this. They've become intoxicated with it. Just like in the previous chapter, religious Babylon had become drunk with the power, and they actually murdered the saints. Well, here they've become drunk with this, this idea. They've become intoxicated with the idea that there's never enough. Have, have you ever wondered how much is enough for something? Well, just a little bit more than I got right now. That's what a guy told me one time. He was very, very wealthy. I said, what, when is it going to be enough? He said, never. Never. It's not going to ever be enough. You know what? He was one of the most unhappy people I've ever known. He was not satisfied with what he had. On the other hand, I know people that had not, not one-tenth of what he had. Well, not one, one, one hundred. Not one, one thousandth of what he had. Very content. They had enough. But if money's your main object, there's never enough. That's straight from the Bible. I didn't make that up. There's never enough if that's your end game. You always want just a little bit more. So we see that's the setting for this destruction that's about to take place. Now, if you look back at verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The angelic messenger is speaking this as though it's already happened. It's a done deal. And may I skip all the way to the end? I want to skip to my conclusion now, but we're going to come back to it in a minute. The Bible tells us over and over and over again that God wins in the end. The information is right there. Now, since it's already been revealed, it means it's a done deal. There's not going to be a changing of the mind at the end. 
we're not going to get into the, to heaven to look down upon the tribulation and turns out Satan wins after all. God says, hey, that's just not worth the fight. No, this is going to happen exactly the same way that the Scriptures unfold it as happening. We see that in the way this is phrased here. Fallen upon is Babylon the Great. This is technically right before it falls, but as long as God decrees that it's going to fall, it's a done deal. It's going to fall. Just like God has decreed that there will be a millennium. It's a done deal. Satan can fight it all he wants to, but it's a done deal. Now, if it's going to fall, it would make sense for God's people who were left in the city of Babylon to get out. And apparently there were, there were still a few that had not been martyred yet. Look at verse 4. And I heard another voice come from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. In Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 45, Jeremiah urged the people to leave Babylon. And in the same way, those in the tribulation will be urged to leave immediately. Because if the city of Babylon is completely destroyed, then the people of God who stay would be destroyed along with it. And that's not God's plan for these people to suffer the same fate as, I'm going to call them the ungodly, but the unrighteous, or let's just say the unbelievers of Babylon. The text tells us that God remembered her iniquities. The term remembering here means that God's about to act. It's not that he ever forgot them. It means he's going to act upon those iniquities now. Warren Wiersbe, when he wrote about this passage, he made application for today that I think is worth noting. And that is, you don't want to share in other people's sins. The idea is you want to be careful who you hang around with. Now, these people need to leave so they don't suffer the same fate. But when somebody is doing the wrong thing, you don't want to be standing next to them. You don't want to be hanging out with them. You don't want to be closely associated with them because you may also be closely associated with their discipline. That's a very serious applicational point from these two verses. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, said we need to beware because evil companions corrupt good morals. We know that the biblical principle of blessing by association is true. We find that in the Abrahamic covenant. God's going to bless those who bless Abraham. He's going to curse those who curse Abraham. But there's that second part, isn't there? We can be blessed by association. But we can also be cursed by association. At the same time, we want to associate with people that aren't necessarily believers or believers that aren't necessarily walking in fellowship with God because we want to have a testimony before those people. We want to be a witness to those people. How can you ever give somebody the gospel if you never hang around any unbelievers at all? If you just say, I'm going to totally separate myself from this culture, I'm going to separate myself from this society, it's not time to do that yet. God's going to separate us from this culture at some point. It's called the resurrection of the church. Until he does that, you're supposed to grow where you're planted. You're supposed to minister to, who, to the people God brings you to minister to. If you decided, I'm not going to have anything to do with any unbelievers for the rest of my life, you have actually not progressed in your spiritual life. Who are you going to give the gospel to? Your friends? They're all believers. You know, and, and if you say, well, I'm only, going to, I'm only going to hang out with people who are walking in fellowship with God like I'm walking in fellowship with God, assuming you are, then who are you going to encourage to walk in fellowship with God? You're going to be preaching to the choir all the time. Now, 
I would say it's a really good thing. I, I'm really blessed with just a multitude of Christian friends. I love Christian fellowship. I, I truly do. But I also love it from time to time when I hang out with people that are obviously not believers because it gives me the opportunity to share my faith either by my words or by my actions. Sometimes we have to share our faith with our actions first. We have to show people that we're worth listening to. But the principle of this passage in verses 4 and 5 is you've got to be careful to not associate yourself so closely with the unbeliever that you share in that unbeliever's discipline when the discipline comes. Between verses 6 and 10, I want you to pay close attention to the severity of the judgment and the rapidity of the judgment. Let's start with the unbeliever first. Unbelievers go along merrily along their way. It's almost like they're mocking God. Nothing ever is going to happen to me. God, God, I've, I've gotten really rich. I've got a wonderful family. I've got a nice home. I have a nice job. I'm as unbelieving as I can possibly be. I'm not really sure there is a God at all. It's almost like they're shaking their fist at God. And they think that this is unlimited. Someday, at some point in time, God's going to say, okay, that was it. And everybody goes, well, give me one more minute. You know how that is? You know, people do that to you all the time. You say, no, 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 no. I've done that in my past profession. I would have employees, and I'd say, you need, you need to be here at 8.30. That's when patients start getting here. They, they get here at 8.30. So they come at 8.35 for the next week. So that, that was close. But we really need to get here at 8.30. So then they get here at 8.30 for a couple of days, and then it's 8.40, 8.45. Well, I was running late. You know, my clothes were in the dryer. I had to drop the kids off at school. Then it's nine o'clock. He said to me, "No, I'm really, really serious about this. I need you here because you're here to help take care of these patients when they come in." Oh yeah, okay. Well, then they don't do it. They don't do it. They don't do it. So one day you call me and says, "Well, if you'll give me your key, I'll give you your check." Why? What did I do? I said, "Well, you. you know, we had this talk lots of times. You need to be here at a certain time, and for some reason you can't do that. So I've got to get somebody that can." Well, I can't believe you do this to me. Why would you do this to me? I can't, I can't believe this. Well, you should have believed it. What do you think we were talking about all those times? You see, in, in a much greater way, that's what these unbelievers are doing. Well, wait a minute. If I had only known, you know, you didn't know. Remember, remember that neighbor that you made fun of all the time? They told you about God. Remember that goofy guy that handed you that pamphlet that you threw away and you, you argued with him and you made fun of him? Actually, that pamphlet told you how to come to me. No, I gave you plenty of opportunities, and you said no each time. When the end comes, the point of, the point of these verses, the verses 6 through 10, when the end comes, it comes very quickly, and it is devastating. Much worse than getting fired from a job. Watch. In verse 6, pay her back, even as she has paid, and give her back double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. Verse 7, to the degree that she has glorified herself and lived and lived sensuously. Again, this is not necessarily sexually oriented, but this is lustfully in all, all areas of life. Watch again, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I said as a queen, I'm not a widow. I'll never see mourning. I'll never need God. Can I paraphrase it that way? I'll never need God. I'm a queen. For this reason, in one day, 
her plagues will come. Pestilence and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. In verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because they of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe! The great city Babylon, the strong city, when one hour her judgment has come. You see the rapidity? First it was mentioned that just in one day, all this just happened. In one day, bam, it's over. And then when we get down to the last part, it's like in one hour. It's almost like instantaneously. And I'm sure they're going to be like the people that get laid off after being told time and time and time again, that's not the way you do it. Oh, give, give me one more chance. Well, I gave you 12 chances. I'm giving you six months worth of chances. The clock is going to strike midnight at some point, and it's going to be over. But that's for the unbeliever. For the believer, we can make a similar application, though, couldn't we? Once we've trusted Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and grant us eternal life, we have our sins forgiven, and we have eternal life. Now, for some people, they take that as a free ticket to behave any way they want to behave. And they, you know what they think? I know what they think. They think, I'm going to correct this someday. Then they may even be convicted one day by some event that happens in their life. Maybe they get scared. That's usually what happens. Fear comes into their life. So they say, maybe the correction is going to come soon. So they say, well, you know, I better get this fixed. I'm going to work on this, but not right now. I'm going to work on it next week. And how many times do they work on it next week? Not very often. And then it's the next week, and it's the next week, and it's the next year. And God's going to bring down discipline on that person. Not, not the kind of discipline we have here. Not destruction. But discipline will come. And when it comes, it's going to come hard and fast. And you're going to say, why did you do that to me, Lord? Because I warned you over and over and over again. You've got to turn around. You can't keep going that way. You have to repent. You've got to turn around and go the right direction. But you just wouldn't do it. So you see, the principle actually holds true for believers too. Now, not the destruction principle. Believers will never be destroyed. In fact, remember, they're supposed to get out so they're not destroyed. Watch also the degree. This is interesting. Twice as much. Whatever they gave out, it's going to come back at them twice as hard. God is fair. But that's part of God's fairness. You murder his saints. You think you're doing God a favor when you do it? When the day comes, you're going to pay for it dearly. In verses 11 through 19, we see the lament of the merchants of the earth. Now, we have Babylon as the economic center, but watch, it's a worldwide economic system. So you have people all over the world that are making money from this system that originates in the city of Babylon. In verse 11, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Isn't that just like these kind of people? These kind of people? They're not the least bit sad over Babylon itself falling. Why are they sad? Because their revenue stream's going away. That's why they're upset. They're, no one buys their cargo anymore. Now, all this happens very quickly, but in verse 12, cargoes of gold and silver, silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wool and article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble, all these luxurious items. 
and cinnamon and spice and everything nice. That's not what it says, but it says, and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep. All these are things that are being traded by these people, okay? And cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human souls, human life. Slave trade is going to go on into the future. Most of you have heard of John Newton. Maybe not. The guy that wrote Amazing Grace. Last year I was, I was honored and humbled both to stand in his pulpit in the first church that he had in London. I didn't want to go up there. It's like I didn't want to sit at George Mueller's desk in Bristol. I had a special tour. They allowed me to sit there and want to take a picture of me. If you ever see that picture, I'm not very happy. I didn't want to sit at that desk. I didn't feel worthy to sit at that desk. I didn't feel worthy to stand in John Newton's pulpit. John Newton was a slave trader. You know how bad a guy John Newton was? He made other slave traders mad. Other slave traders thought John Newton was disgusting. They abandoned him, actually. Joseph Afghan. He had to be picked up. It was at his deepest, darkest moment where he realized he was disgusting that he came to Christ. And a truer song has never been written. Amazing grace. He believed it when he said it. But the things that he described about the slave trade, Absolutely disgusting. And it was Wilberforce's association with Newton that was one of the driving ideals behind the abolition of the slave trade in Great Britain. I know there were articles in the United States as well, but it was Wilberforce that was the driving force behind all of that. These people were, were, were trading in human lives. And there's a lot of different ways that can be done. All of slavery is disgusting. All of it. We should never try to defend slavery. I would never have wanted to be a slave. But one of the most disgusting forms of slavery is the current sex slave activity that goes on right here, right here in Houston. I am told, and I could be corrected, Judge Taff, I know you're on this ministry, but I'm told that Houston is one of the largest areas for human trafficking in the world. And it's not just sex slave trafficking, but that's a big part of it. And this area of Houston is one of the largest areas in Houston for sex trafficking. That's why the Freedom Captives event on the 27th will be right across the street over here on the other side of the freeway. It is absolutely disgusting to sell another human soul. And to do it the way these, these sex slave traders are doing it is just absolutely it's horrifying. That's the type of people that these merchants were. These weren't just people that owned a 7-Eleven. These were greedy, disgusting people that were taking advantage of others in order to make money. I hope you see that. And the fruit you long for has gone from you. And all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men no longer find them. And the merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa! The great city who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour, see, that's that short time again. For in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. Every shipmaster and passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of a burning saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, and they were crying out and weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city. That's mentioned three times right here. Whoa, whoa, the great city in which 
all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour, she's been laid waste. You see, they're stunned by the rapidity of this judgment. They're going on living their lives like nothing's ever going to happen. But when it comes, it comes with severity. And it comes with rapidity. But contrast what happens in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and prophets and apostles, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Babylon slays the saints. God slays Babylon. That's a biblical principle as well, isn't it? How many times have you heard, Vengeance is mine. I will pay, says the Lord. It is always better. Always better. To let the Lord handle it. I know we're tempted. We're tempted to take our own vengeance. But God can do it infinitely better than we can. When we take our own vengeance, typically we go too far. We can't do it with the justice and righteousness with which God can do it. And we end up oftentimes sinning in the process of taking our vengeance. Let God do it. Don't get in His way. When God destroys the wicked, He will do it perfectly. And He'll do it righteously. And He'll do it justly. And I would say, I'll speak for myself, when I've tried to take my own vengeance, it's certainly not perfect. There's nothing just about it or there's nothing righteous about it. It's just as sinful as what was done to me. And they sucked me in. So they didn't just get me once, they got me twice. The second time it was totally my fault. It wasn't their fault. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now all of us, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, all of us have problems with this sometimes. We just take our vengeance in a different way. You know, little boys grow up taking their vengeance out on the schoolyard. Meet me out there after class. And then you wrestle and you get it done. Females, I understand, have different ways of getting vengeance. But it's not going to work. Let God handle it. Now, this doesn't mean that if somebody cheats your company, you, you can't take specific legal action to correct the wrong, especially if you have other people that are investors in your company. You may have to take legitimate steps. But there's a difference between taking legitimate legal steps and taking vengeance on someone. Don't take vengeance. God will do it. And that's what is happening here. God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Yes, they sinned against God. First and foremost, against God. But they killed God's saints. And these were people, these are people, oh my goodness, these are people that are, will forever be recognized in heaven as being martyred for God. I know it's tough when somebody's martyred. We prayed for one this morning that was martyred in Morocco. Remember at the prayer meeting upstairs. That man will be remembered forever as one who gave his life for Christ. Well, it's unpleasant. It's certainly something where the person themselves will be vindicated and they will be vindicated in heaven to reward forever. And then finally in verses 21 through 24 as we finish this chapter, I want you to notice how many times this phrase won't be found in her anymore, won't be found in her any longer. Watch how complete 
We saw that it was devastating judgment. It was rapid judgment. Now we're going to see it's complete judgment. Look, look at how many times these phrases are repeated. You'll see it six times in these verses that the same phrase is going to be repeated or something similar. And a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. Now what happens if you throw a big rock into the sea? It goes all the way to the bottom. There's not, it's, it is no more. And the strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and flew it in the state, saying, This will Babylon be, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found anymore. And will not be found any longer. Verse 22, And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpets will not be heard any longer. And craftsmen and of any craft will be found in you no longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard any longer. And the sight of a lamp will not shine any in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Six times. That phrase or something almost identical any longer. Six times. You see, the destruction is not only rapid and just, but it's complete. Actually, that phrase is used seven times in this chapter. Back in verse 14, it was also used. No longer. It's done. And when God says it's over, it's over. Once again, this is directly related to the unbeliever, but we should take a lesson from it as well. As believers, don't test God's patience. If you have an idea, like as we're talking tonight, if you're thinking, well, you know that thing, whatever it is, don't tell me, don't tell anybody else. That thing I need to work on, maybe you need to work on it tonight. Maybe you need to start praying about it tonight. Whatever that may be. I don't know. It's, it's going to be different for everybody in here, but I'm sure most everybody in here has at least one area some a whole bunch, maybe. But most of us, at least one area that we need to work with. So we end chapter 18 with the total destruction of the worldwide economic system of Babylon in the final days of the tribulation. Now, let me, make, let me say one more thing. You remember that chapters 17 and 18 were another parenthetical section. They weren't chronological. Chapter 17 went all the way back to the beginning of the tribulation. Chapter 18 began in the, uh, I'm sorry, the economic system, which began in the middle, is destroyed at the very end of the tribulation. It's all coordinated, though, with some things that we're going to see in chapter 19 when the chronology starts back. Now, briefly, because it is such a comparison and contrast, I want to discuss the first six verses of chapter 19. I don't want to confuse you, but we've returned now to a chronological sequence. We left it in, in 16. Now we're coming back to it in 19. After these things, I heard, as it were, a, great, a loud voice of a great multitude from heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. These, of course, are the saints. These are the righteous ones. Why? In verse 2, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of the bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! 
her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, this is the smoke from Babylon. Now, technically speaking, it can't rise up forever and ever in that sense in that there's a new heaven and a new earth, but it's going to rise up throughout the presence of this current earth. It's going to be a smokestack as a memorial to what happened there. In verse 4, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you, His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! The Lord our God, the Almighty, The word hallelujah is a term that's often used in Christian worship, but you may not know it only occurs four times in the New Testament. And I just read you all four. All four occurrences of this word, which means basically praise the Lord. All four occurrences are in this context, in verses 1, 3, 4, and 6. The way the term is used in its context is a victory shout, if you will associated with the judgment of God's enemies and the deliverance of God's people. It is recognizing God as the victor. God is the source of our prosperity. God is the source of everything good in it. That's what this, praise God. Hallelujah is Yahweh. Praise the Lord. I don't particularly care so much for, you know, those dances that wide receivers do in football. We're not football season now. You know, when they get to the end zone, they do silly, silly dances. If you take them out of the context and just show them, they look pretty bad, you know, really. I don't really like prideful demonstrations or celebrations in any sport, quite frankly. You know, look at me. What, what it says, look at me. I scored a touchdown not recognizing that there were 10 other people that did their jobs that allowed you to score. So I don't care how good the catch was. And I was a wide receiver, so I mean, I'm prejudiced that direction, but I don't care how good the catch was. The quarterback had to throw the ball while getting his brains beat out. Lyman's got bloody noses and chopped knees, and somebody else had to block. Somebody else had to run a really good route to get you open. But here, here in the end zone, touchdown, and it's all about me. I scored a touchdown. I hit a home run. I made a sack. I really love those. What are you getting paid for? You're getting paid to make a tackle. I don't know why there's got to be a celebration after everyone, but that's what people seem to want now, and that's fine. I scored a goal in, in soccer. I, 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 I. But when God destroys those who have warred against Him, those who have murdered believers in the Lord Jesus, those that have oppressed others for their own profit, the righteous will celebrate. And rightly so. But notice... This celebration is all about God. It's not about them. There's no I in this. It's you, Lord. Hallelujah. Which means praise God. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. This is not gloating over something that we've done. It's standing in wonder of what God has accomplished. Remember that. It's just it's perfectly fine to say hallelujah. Remember what you're saying. You're saying, I'm praising God for what He has accomplished. I don't want to impugn other people's motives, but it seems to me I've been in context in other parts of the world where the hallelujah comes out and it's drawing attention to themselves. It's like the end zone dance. No, when you say hallelujah and you say it rightly, you're drawing all the attention to God. And I'm sure sometimes there's a big smile on one's face 
when they say it, and probably sometimes there's tears in their eyes. It's God-centered, not worshiper-directed. The text says one of the reasons why they're doing it is because his judgments are true and just. That's a direct quotation from Psalm 19, verse 9. You know, what this tells us is this is not new revelation. This is fulfillment of that which we should have already known. It's come to pass. It's, it's here. We've always known that in the end God wins and those who are with Him win because we're associated with Him, not because of us. Are you humble enough to accept that? That we're going to win but not because of something we do? Not because of a touchdown we scored or a block that we threw or a pass that was actually actually completed by us because of what somebody else did, we win. I hope you're okay with that. We've always known that He would avenge the wrongs done to His children. Hallelujah. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, this fourfold hallelujah rings out. The voice of the great multitude says it three times. The 24 elders and the four living creatures that we met way earlier in the text, they say it as well. So there's really four conclusions that we can draw from this lesson tonight. The first is that the root of many kinds of evil is lust for money, the love of money. The second, we need to beware because evil companions corrupt good morals. The third, when God judges, it's going to come quickly. And it'll be fair. And finally, in the end, God 